We believe he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the living word of God for us today. Please be seated. Morning, Fellowship. Great to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Larry Kayser, and I am the marriage pastor here at Fellowship, and I also have the privilege of serving on the elder board. And so I'm very grateful to be up here and share a little bit of life with you this morning. You know, I hoped, <coughs> excuse me, I hope as you looked at that video that we showed, you know, one of the things the first time I saw that video, uh, I was just blown away. And I was thinking, what in the world, what word comes to my mind when I see that? And you know, one word that just sort of jumps out at me is the word transcendence. When you think about how many thousands of light years that thing took you out, that video took you out, and then all the way down to the absolute tiniest, most complex little microscopic particles that make us who we are, and then you read that passage from Colossians and we are instantaneously reminded that virtually everything on earth, seen and unseen, is sustained by the power of Jesus' word. Everything we saw in there was not only created, but it is sustained. If Christ should cease to sustain the creation would cease to exist. Every breath that you and I take is dependent on the sustaining power of Jesus. I wish I could learn to live in the light of that reality all the time. Like I, I can't, but I know that sometimes it really helps me to remind myself that God is really big and I am small. And at the same time, though God commands this gigantic scope of the universe, he comprehends and deeply knows me. Man, that's just kind of an amazing thing to me. And every now and then, it is really good for followers of Jesus to stop and just let some truth, some reality around Jesus essentially take our breath away, to be stunned by his beauty, to be stunned by his complexity, to be stunned by his imagination and his creativity and his attention to unspeakable detail, this person that we worship. 
You know, every time that happens, every time we really see him, we change. We do. And you can't get to know Jesus and stay the same. No one who ever has really encountered Christ and really come to know him ever stays the same. You know, Jesus encountered this, uh, you know, Jewish thief, really, Zacchaeus. And he engaged him and Zacchaeus went and gave away half of his fortune. He encountered an outcast Samaritan woman who was filled with shame from her past and she became an evangelist in her own community. He walked with Peter and then Peter one day got out of the boat and tried to get on the water. He inspired four friends of a paralytic to punch a hole through the roof of a house to lower his friend down to see Jesus. He encountered a woman who had been struggling with bleeding for 12 years in her life. And somehow she found the courage to fight through, fight through her shame and her fear to push through that crowd as an unclean woman and touch the hem of his garment. You can't know Jesus and stay the same. You know, Mark and Dottie and Vanessa this morning, I just love that we had them up here today. And we only got to hear, you know, just a, a short little tidbit of what God is doing in their life. And, and like in them and in us, when I say that we're not the same, it doesn't mean that our struggle with sin is gone. It doesn't mean that everything in us has been healed and all washed away. It doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean is there are things in you about the way you confront your pain, about what you know to be true, about your eternal security, about what you know to be true. Even the idea that when we begin to struggle with sin is actually evidence of the reality of God in us. The struggle in and of itself is evidence that God is real and that he is in us. And so when we encounter Jesus, you don't stay the same. You know, I was a 21-year-old man when I encountered Jesus. And I spent my life up to that point in my life in a religious system that basically kept me on a wheel where I struggled between guilt and shame in cycles on a regular basis. And there was never one time in my life that I ever wasn't waiting for the next moment when I would cycle through my guilt and my shame and try to figure out how to make that right and then do it again and how to make that right. And over the course of my life, as I grew a little bit older and a little bit more into adulthood, it became more and more oppressive to me when I understood what it was doing to me. And then one day, and this is a long story, but one day in the apartment of my wife-to-be, who had been trying to help me understand what a relationship with Jesus looks like and what grace is all about, what real forgiveness is. One day, I finally heard and I finally surrendered and I finally literally physically knelt down in her living room floor and I prayed a prayer and asked for forgiveness and I asked Jesus to lead my life and to forgive me of my sins. And something happened to me when I knelt down that when I stood up, I was never the same man. And I can identify even a couple of those things that changed right then. For the first time in my life, I believed and I knew that I was forgiven for every sin I'd ever committed. And I actually believed I was forgiven of everyone that was out ahead of me because for the first time, 
I began to grasp grace. And the second thing that left me was fear. Fear of dying, fear of disappointing God, fear of being shamed and in this cycle again. I got up and those two things didn't have their talons in me anymore in the same way. Now, you know, since then, I have spent my life taking two steps forward and one step backward or two steps backward and one step forward. But one thing I know, that the day, that, that, that morning when I encountered Jesus for the first time, I did not get up the same man as the one that knelt down. And when you look at the scriptures and you read the, from cover to cover, when, when people meet God, when people meet Jesus, they are changed. They're not the same. We can't stay the same. And honestly, if, if, you, if you can't identify change in your life from knowing Jesus, I just want to encourage you, not as a way of judgment, but a way of asking yourself, have I really encountered Jesus, really? Because you ought to be able to see some reality in your life where you go, wow, this used to be true of me and now it's not really true in the same way. And I just want to, I cannot encourage you enough to know for sure that you have encountered the living Christ. And one of the beautiful things about the text we're studying is that if you want to know who Jesus is, I don't know if there's five or six verses in the Bible that are more pointed and more transcendent and more powerful in terms of describing who this God is that we worship than this text. So we're going to jump into it again this, after, this morning. And last week, you know, Lloyd got us started in this creed that we've been reciting and trying to learn in verses 15 and 16. And it was primarily about Jesus' identity in relationship to God and in relationship to creation. That's kind of the center of those first two verses. So this week, the next two verses, 17 and 18, we're going to pick right up where he left off. Now, I want to read those again for us. In verse 17, he starts, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So the first thing I'd love to do is I want you to take your, if you brought your book with you, the Illuminated Scripture Journal here, if you've got that with you, I want you to flip over to page eight because I want to honor the work that Lloyd and Rob have started for us as we kind of learn to mark up the text as we read the scriptures. And so the first thing I'd like to do is I want you to put boxes around every direct reference to Jesus in verse 17 and 18. Every direct reference to Jesus. Just put a box around that. And the second thing I want you to do is I want you to look, as you should often do, is to look for key phrases or words that are repeated. And so I want you to, to draw brackets around everywhere where you see all things. And uh, in verse um, 18, the word everything is the same Greek word. They just simply, I think, gave it some variety in translation. And you can even back up into verses uh, 16 there and you'll find another couple of all things. That's a pretty powerful theme in this passage. 
all things. So now let's stop and take a few minutes here and we'll try to work through these two verses just phrase by phrase, trying to mine out what we can learn about God. So there really are five pretty amazing truths that are revealed in just these two couple of verses about who Jesus is. So in, in verse 17, the first phrase begins, and he is before all things. What in the world might it mean that Jesus was before all things? Well, he's chronologically before, he's uncreated, he is pre-existent. He didn't come into existence in the stable or in the cave when he was born. That's not when Jesus came into existence. He always existed. He became incarnate when he was born on the earth, but he was pre-existent to that experience. So early in the passage last week, uh, Lloyd talked about in verse 16 that for by him, all things were created. So he's always existed. We don't know, and it's hard for us to process that because it says in that text and in other places in John 1 that Jesus was an agent. He is a source of creation. Like, wow, no beginning and no end. And you know, the Pharisees in Jesus' day struggled with the very same question. So one day in John chapter eight, you know, they asked him this question. They said, you're not 50 years old yet. And yet you say you have seen Abraham. Like, how is that possible? And you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, before Abraham was, I am. And that word I am was the divine Hebrew term for God. And so, of course, they know exactly what he said because their response to that phrase was, let's kill him. Because what he said was, men, I am the pre-existent creator God of the universe. It is why he died. It is why he died. You know, I have to tell you, I am really grateful that there's things about Jesus that I simply don't understand. As a matter of fact, I can't understand. I have to tell you, I'm, I'm really glad that some of these truths simply won't bend to my intellect. You know, sometimes when we have problems that are about God or about big pictures like that, we struggle because we don't know the answers. And sometimes that becomes a stumbling block to our ability to believe. But for me, it creates a different issue for me because... I am glad that I have questions about God that can't bend to my own mind because then I know that he is God and I am not. I know that he isn't like me and I need a God who isn't like me. This pre-existent, always existed God who created everything is not like me. And that brings me actual joy. So he is before all things. That's our first truth. Let's look at the second phrase. And in him, all things hold together. There's that word, that phrase again, all things. You know, Rob started this series saying that for the last hundred years, 
there's been this quest to discover a unifying theory of everything. And you know, Stephen Hawkins and there's all kinds of other authors and uh, scientists out there who have attempted to create this theory of everything. And really what we have here is Paul saying that Christ is the theological theory of everything. He is at the center of it all and he holds it all together. Theologian David Garland says he is the key who unlocks the meaning and the purpose of the universe. Another commentator said he keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. You know, when I, looked at, when I look at that video that we showed and I, you look at the solar system and then you keep going out and going out and going out and going out and you think to yourself, what prevents chaos? What prevents, what keeps these planets in their orbit and what keeps the earth in the right place so that we can inhabit this place? Why isn't there chaos throughout the solar system? Because all things hold together in him. He is the glue and he keeps things, us, from being disintegrated. So it means that no creature or no creature or piece of creation is entirely autonomous from him. And you know, the reality is, I know that I have spent some, some significant part of my life either overtly thinking I'm aut autonomous from God or I just decide I am in certain areas of my life. You know, you, you, might, you might think that you're autonomous from Jesus uh, or you might not be aware that you're living in dependence upon his gracious kindness, but we cannot exist apart from the sustaining grace of God. Everything that lives is dependent upon Jesus for life and breath and meaning. That is what this text is telling us. That's a really large piece of truth. And it has very significant imp implications for our life if we believe that it's true. Let's go on to verse 18. It says, he is the head of the body, the church. You know, up to this point, this hymn, if you will, that started in verse 16 has focused on creation, the creation of the earth, the creation of all things. It is, that's what it's been focused on. And right here, there is a theme change in our poem or in our hymn here, because now the the, the theme changes from the first creation to the new creation. You might even call it the new community. Now it's going to start, it's going to shift to this recreation that begins and finds its meaning and its origin in the beginning of the church. So you think, what does the church have to do with the, the recreation? I mean, honestly, it's like the, it's the very center of it. The church is his first act of new creation. You know, here and in other places, Paul describes the church as new humanity. And you might even call it a new community. So in the first creation, the pinnacle of creation was mankind. It was very good. And in the new creation, the pinnacle is the new community or redeemed people. People who have been born again, who live with the indwelling presence of his spirit and make up this new creation called the body of Christ. And when it says he is the head that word he is emphatic. It is the beginning. It's no human being on earth is the head of the church. 
He is the head of the church. And this distinction belongs solely to Jesus. You know, and what it means to be the head, it means both to be the authority, but it also means to be the source. So Jesus is at once the authority that leads the church. He is the head over the body, but he is also the very source of its lifeblood. He is the creator of the church. So he is both of those things to the church. And you know, a lot of times when we think about the church, and I know I'm guilty of this, when I think about the church, sometimes I get trapped in brick and mortar and seats and people and budgets and pastors and individual distinctions uh, that are in churches all around the world and we get really focused and hung up on what our church is doing or what this church is all about. But here's what's true. Jesus is the head of an unstoppable, immovable, always pressing forward church of Jesus Christ. It is a covenant community. It is church with a really big C. All believers everywhere over all time on every continent and every generation, Jesus is the head of that. He is the truth and the power behind it. And that means that there's a living relationship between Christ and the church as there is a living relationship between a physical head and a body. The church is a living organism and as the body of Christ, we are united with Christ who is our head. That is one of the most hopeful things I ever read or think about. And although sometimes, you know, when I'm mired or working or have my face down in an individual local church, sometimes that can create some frustration, some heartache, um, even some discouragement. But when I am reminded that there is this big C church, this unstoppable, immovable, always pressing forward forth, then I realize that that's been true since Jesus left the earth and has never stopped. The church has never stopped advancing in this world. I read an article just this last week about what's happening in Iran. There is an enormous church coming to life in Iran. It's an amazing thing. And you would think it's one of the most, obviously one of the most dangerous and difficult places in the world. And yet it's like there has been this seed that's been dropped into the most rock hard, dry soil you could ever imagine. And there is this church coming to life by the thousands in Iran where it might cost them their life to be a part of it. And every time I read that stuff, every time I think about it, you know, when, when, when I've been able to go to Russia on mission trips and I see what God's doing in this terribly painful, lonely part of the world and I see these sprouts of new life in China, all over the world for over 2,000 years in every people group and across every continent, the church moves onward. That gives me hope and joy, and faith. It does. But what is also true since the New Testament until today is that the church is made up of localized expressions of the body of Christ who gather and participate in organized worship in a particular, with particular leaders and particular practices. And that's the way the church spread throughout the world from the New Testament on. And so being part of a local church is a vital part of our health as believers. It really is. But you know, one of the things that has happened 
in, in our country, I think, in our culture, you know, we tend to live in what I would call a consumeristic kind of culture, right? I mean, we spend a lot of time um, navigating our world based on what we think is gonna bring us a return personally. And can I tell you that I know that even for me, that it's been very difficult to keep my consumer mind out of my experience and approach to what I believe the church is about. That I can easily come here and bring the same kind of thinking I might bring when I choose between Walmart and Target or Sam's Club and Amazon over something who serves me the best, what's the best deal for me, how can I get it quickest, what's, and sometimes I feel like that it's been hard not to bring that into the church. And so the church is not something that was designed for us to consume. It's designed for us to be a part of like a family to contribute to. And the church does not exist to meet the needs of its members, but to serve the needs of its head. Now, it is a great joy in a healthy church to meet real pressing needs of people in the body and out. And that certainly is a part of what we're about as a church. But at its very core, it isn't primarily about serving each other. It's about serving the needs of the head. And what has the, what has the head of the church done for 2,100 years to keep this unstoppable force moving? Is to keep a healthy balance between serving those near us and reaching out to those around us. You know, Rob and Lloyd, you know, the elders, it's really good to remind us, you know, they're not really the head of the church. They're not the head of the church. Like we have a head, it's not us, thank goodness. And you know, that's one of the reasons that in the last couple of years, we've worked so hard again for ourselves to make sure like, what are we doing here? Let's get focused around what we're doing. It's why we've come back and said, we need to, we need to get ourselves to the place we're bringing others to find wholehearted life where? In Jesus, how do we serve the head? Jesus, we're serving the head by coming to know him in a way that he spurs us on to new adventures and new commitments on his behalf and in his name. You know, it's really one of the reasons that we're spending eight months in this little book because this little book has Jesus everywhere. Who is Jesus and what do we need to know about him so that we encounter him and we don't leave unchanged? We don't. So if you understand that Jesus is in the process of forming his new community as the first, first act of a new creation, then the next part of this makes perfect sense. And uh, I love verse 18. It says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Which beginning is he talking about there? Well, that's directly related to the, the phrase firstborn from the dead. So he's not talking about the beginning of creation. He's talking about the beginning of the new creation. And this is a beautiful thing here. He's talking about the church. So Lloyd mentioned last week that the word firstborn 
You know, it doesn't mean necessarily always priority of time, but often priority of rank and authority. And in this instance, it's both. So by being the firstborn of the dead, that means that by his resurrection, Jesus defeated death and flung open the door of the grave so that human beings could follow him out. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message says, he describes Jesus as leading the resurrection parade. You know, Jesus not only rose from the dead, he's the firstborn from among the dead. And that means that he will be raised from the dead too. We, and that means that we will be raised from the dead too. Christ's resurrection is the basis for everybody else's. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, which I would so encourage you to read this week, they describe Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection. So whenever the Israelites celebrated like the fall harvest and they would bring fruits to be sacrificed, they would bring the first fruits of their labor to be sacrificed. And the whole point of bringing that was to offer that up to God and say, thank you, because what we know to be true is that these first fruits we're giving away are simply the representation of all that is to come. And that's what Jesus is called as the first fruit of the resurrection. Like he's the first one. All the rest of us are all coming. You know, we're gonna come to a point in time where death isn't gonna have any more authority. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul foresees a day when death will be so powerless over, over us that we'll mock it. But we're not at that place today. You know, we don't mock death. Death is painful still. We don't mock it. We still feel it. But a day is coming. And Paul says on that day, death be swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? At some point, our identity in Christ and our physical death will merge into the new creation and death will no longer rule. This is all about who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. He is the author, the sustainer, the head, the grace, the forgiver of the new creation that you and I are all part of. He is the head and we're his body. And we're related. It's a beautiful thing. So the final result of these two truths is in second half of verse 18 that says that in everything he might be preeminent. That Greek word for be, be preeminent is only used one time in the New Testament. And it's right here. It means to be first or to have his first place or to hold the highest rank in the group. So what's the group that Jesus is preeminent over? Everything. All things. Everything. Here's how one commentator put it. There is no sphere in creation over which Christ is not sovereign. Abraham Kuypers, a Dutch theologian, said there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. You know what's hard about that? Is there's an awful lot of things in this world that hurt. There's an awful lot of unfair stuff in the world. There's a lot of suffering in the world. And that's included in the mind part. And so to believe 
to, to have your faith bolstered that Jesus isn't like us and that he sees things we can't see and that he understands the end in a way that none of us can understand it except reading it off of a page. The fact is we live right in the not yet time and there is still lots of hurt and heartache in this world and Jesus is preeminent. He is the center. You know, when it says he'll work all things for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose, he doesn't say everything is good. He says he'll work things to our good. Not that everything is good. It's a lot of real heartache in this world. Incredible heartache. You know, the video at the beginning of our time this morning, it, I really, I just wanted it as a reminder of the reach of a sovereign God, of the sovereign God, the farthest unimaginable distance of space and time to the smallest. So what does that mean for us? It means Jesus is king over every square inch that Jesus is also, if, he's, if he is king over every square inch, he's also king over every square inch of us, our lives. You can't have Christ over the whole universe and keep him out of your heart. You just can't. So if he's the center of all things, that must mean that human flourishing is to be found being in right relationship with him. So the gracious invitation of Jesus is always this. He says, allow me to reorient your life, to turn it upside down. But here's the thing, from the moment we're born, and this means everybody, I mean, the thing that we do to orient our life immediately is to turn, put me in the middle. That's the first thing we do. I mean, obviously as a, as a child, you can't help it. So the way you orient your life as a child is, I need my needs met. And so as parents, you know, we spend years and years and years trying to help your child orient their life outside of themselves. The problem is a lot of us, as we walk into our adulthood, the, what happens is that we simply become more sophisticated in our ability to turn our lives around us in less offensive ways, maybe, than we do maybe when we're small children. But the truth is, that God is inviting us to move beyond turning this world so that it points to us. Because the fact is, we all make pretty terrible gods. Like, we really do. You know, the one thing that I know is true, and I would bet true for just everybody in the room, almost everybody in here could probably talk about a time in their life where you have a regret about a choice you made, an attitude you walked in. I mean, all kinds of things where you, you instinctively, if you have Christ inside of you, you instinctively knew that what you were about to choose was a poor choice. It was a sinful choice. It was a choice that was against the God who desires preeminence in your heart. And, and we make that choice and almost always we end up feeling the consequences of a choice to push Jesus out of his preeminent place and make it about us or our needs or our wants or our desires. So really, when you think about whether we're gonna make Jesus preeminent or at least begin to surrender to that idea, you kind of have a couple of different options. One, 
We can try to simply make him smaller. We keep Jesus at arm's length. We dismiss, dismiss him as a crutch for the weak-minded. Sometimes we appease him with our own acts of righteousness. Like we're, we, we're good people. People like us, we're good people. And so we kind of keep him at an arm's length by our own commitment to our own goodness. Or sometimes we just put him in the trunk of our car like a spare tire who's there for emergencies. So in that way, you know, we make him smaller rather than making him preeminent. Or our other option might be that you can fall on your knees and simply say, wow, my God and my king. So in other words, when you encounter Jesus, we're either gonna come under him or we're gonna make him come under us. And I don't know about you, but I probably live in both of those worlds. It just might depend on what you're talking to me about on what given day or maybe what area of my life it is. There's certain areas of my life I want Jesus to be under me. Because I realize that the day that you begin to put Jesus and really, really begin to thoughtfully, prayerfully uh, make him preeminent, your life will change. And that change, some of it'll be joyful and some of it'll be painful. But it will create difference in us. It'll change the way we're thinking and living. So what I think a lot of us do is we look at our lives like a pie chart. So you've got work, you've got family, you know, you've got your relationship with God, you've got you know, spouse, you've got hobbies, you've got all these spokes in, or all these pieces of pie. And Jesus is a piece in your pie. And if we're really like, like really grown and <laughs> try to really be serious Christians, maybe it's the biggest piece. But the fact is that we craft our life so he's a slice, kind of rounds out our life, keeps us in balance, if you will. But when you see the word in this text that he is preeminent, what do you think that should do to your pie chart? Right? I mean, he can't be a slice in our pie. He's like got to be the core He's got to be the central thing. And so then all of those other spokes or all those pieces of pie in our chart, they're all informed by what's at the center. How you live your life, how you make your financial choices, how you live out your marriage, how you parent, how you're, what kind of employee you are, how you decide to express your integrity out into the world, how you treat your neighbors. I mean, you, you know, that would go endless, right? I mean, you, you could make an endless pie out of that. But when Jesus becomes the center of the pie, he becomes, that's the preeminent place from where God begins to really change us. Some of it incredibly joyfully and freeing and some of it will be wrenching because it will push against what used to be in the center, what wants to be there still. And that's me. So what Jesus is really asking of us in this text, you know, is will you give him authority in every area of your life? And Jesus, I want to do it because it's really yours to have. And you know, obviously that's not a decision you only make once, but when you do make it, 
you begin to learn some new ways to live and interact with God. And you know, we can know that that's what God wants because that's so clearly what this text tells us about the position, the posture, the nature, and the power of Jesus. Jesus. 